So, um, so what I want to kind of do today, and, and, and I have intentionally not listened to any of this conference, um, not because I don't think Greg has wonderful things to say. It's, it's because I, I, I want you to know that across the world, in the desert, God's doing something all over the place. And he's taking a, a people, his body on a journey. And, and, and he's going to be able to do it, you guys. He is going to finish it. And so he's taking everyone on this journey who have a heart for God. And there'll be some who are satisfied with yesterday. Those some, there'll be some who don't make the journey that you're, you may make. And in making that journey, it's okay where they are. Thank God that you've been given a measure of grace to continue in the things of him. So it really frees you up from being critical or judgmental of other people who maybe don't seem to have it in them. Uh, doesn't mean you don't continue to still share the truth with them, but you can do it from not from a spirit of condemnation or, or, or criticalness, because that really is most important. That's the heart of God. If God wanted to be critical for somebody, we could all really be in a lot of trouble. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is, you know, there's some things that I've uh, read. And, and, and when Greg said to me, hey, I want to base this off of John 17. Well, you know, one of my favorite scripture of all time is John 17, 3. Uh, this is the eternal life to know God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. And, and, and as I've said before, the whole sum of everything is really getting to know God, the fullness of God, the reality of God. And, and, and again, he's such an eternal God, you're going to spend eternity getting to know him. You might as well continue in that journey right now since you are an eternal being. Um, it just, it's, it's really simple, and yet we complicate it. I, I love what you were talking about, uh, about dying. You, you know what? Dying's really easy. It, dying's easy. Dead men don't feel. It's everything that stops you from doing it that creates the problem. But being able to recognize that that, that is a part of life makes it a whole lot better. Is he waving towards me or is he waving at anybody else? You're oh, okay. He's You're good. Just keep going. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> hey, I, I thought maybe, hey, how you doing? <laughs> All right. So... It was a this, high five. This idea, <laughs> the, the challenges of the uh, video conference. <laughs> um, uh, so John 17, 21, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And so as I'm thinking about what this oneness and this purpose of oneness, I have to ask myself the question, God, when did you really think this? Because in the New Testament uh, is when we kind of begin to understand it. But the fact of the matter, I think Genesis chapter 2 is the beginning of when it really begins to be illustrated. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and I'll give you a second to open your Bible since I can see some of you opening. And, and, and again, if I'm repeating things, all that tells me is the Holy Spirit's saying something here. And if I'm not repeating things, 
hopefully we can keep our minds open enough to say, okay, God, I never looked at it that way and, and see what God teaches us. So everybody with me? Yeah, man. Yeah. Shake your head. All right. Thank you. I mean, a few more microphones out there. Let me pray real fast or pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time with friends, uh, no matter where we are. We thank you what you're doing in our lives, God. I pray, God, that you would open our ears to hear the things that you want us to hear, God. I pray, Lord, that you would soften and change our hearts the way that they need to change. That, Lord, that we would, we would become what you are. We would be in your image, that we would be one with you. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to touch us as you see fit, Lord, not by a flattery, a speech or reasoning or anything like that, but by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that I would speak the things of you, that your name would be lifted up. And we give you praise and thanks for this time, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So starting in Genesis 2.18, and the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone, and I will make him a helper, helper comparable to him. Now, just stopping right there, what goes through my head is this. God already knew way beforehand that that this was not going to be good. So it really can't be that God didn't create something good, but literally he was taking taking on, on a journey of what his heart was. So God already knew it. He knew it was not good for, good for man to be alone because God knows what good is before he makes good. So he did not discover after man was made that this wasn't good. So God is very deliberate in everything that he does. And I want to encourage you, anytime that you run into a situation in the Bible, it's okay to go, why did you do it that way? Because asking those questions are the questions that, that enable you to know the character of God. And so, and, and really, forgive me, but that's my brain works. When I see that off scripture, I'm like, really, God, uh, you made something and you go, oh, oh, my goodness. There's, this isn't good. No, it, it doesn't work that way. He knows everything. <laughs> so out of the grab, God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave name to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to the every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help or comparable to him. So here, once again, you see this exercise but it wasn't for God's sake that this thing happened. In God naming all the animals and seeing him, he now begins to see what God already knows. There's nobody here comparable for you. So you see this situation begin to unfold as God illustrates that to him. It says, then the Lord God caused it in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Now, I find it fascinating to me that God does not start over in making Eve. The only thing in the garden that's not made out of dirt at this point is who? Eve. She's taken from man. God was demonstrating the value of the oneness in the very beginning. He was very intentional in what he did. Common sense or manly sense, very uncommon. Manly <laughs> sense would have said, hey, scoop up some dirt, believe. Now we have this independent individual 
that's separate from man. But God didn't make it that way. He created man and woman in the way that he did intentionally. Very good. You got something, Greg? Yeah, it's great. Dave can't hear us. That's why I'm speaking into the mic so he can hear me. Just to confirm. So he feels part of it. Says then the rib which God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, it's interesting that Adam's first revelation or first understanding was knowing that this woman was taken from him. He even names her in such a way. So, again, that which is in the natural is in the spiritual. And what we see is this this attribute or this character of God being manifested in humanity by creating woman and man out of one thing. I have to ask you this question, and it's interesting. Let me, let me finish this. It says Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be what? One flesh. Now, again, he's demonstrating a greater principle. It's not about that. And I think in today's day and age, it's even harder for us to understand really what this dynamic of being one flesh is. First of all, we've we've uh, the we've destroyed uh, the enemy has destroyed it. We've dishonored it by in the things that we've done in our life because I really don't think we understand the oneness of what that was all about. But we'll get on that in the in the next scripture. So so therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They become one flesh. So Adam and Eve are one flesh. So I got to ask you a question. In reality, if the two are one flesh. When did Adam sin? Ah, yes. I love to see the smoke coming out of your ears as you ponder that. Because the two are one flesh, Adam sinned when Eve ate the fruit. Not when Adam did, but when Eve ate the fruit. Now, we could... We could argue and discuss or anything else like this, but here's what I want you to understand. Really, this power of oneness that's demonstrated from the very beginning, even in the way that God created humanity. Everybody still with me? Nobody's left the building yet. <laughs> All right. So I, so what I want to do is I actually want to take a New Testament point of of the same story, if you will, or or talking about marriage, and that's in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, so if you want to turn your Bibles there, Ephesians starting, well, well, we're going to kind of start at 522 and most of the time, that's every man's favorite scripture when he first gets saved uh, until he until he learns better later on. <laughs> but I, I want to start kind of this section to show something to you. And starting on verse 31, he, we start with the same scripture that we knew in Genesis. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. But in verse 32, he says this, 
this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So he's giving this illustration that we always use in marriage counseling or against each other when we should be in marriage counseling or, <laughs> or, uh, um, but, but what he's really doing is he's, he's using a type of shadow or a, a comparison because he's talking about Christ and his body. The, the church is the body of Christ, right? I mean, everybody shake your heads. Like, give me a good, okay. Yes. Everybody can hear me. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so he's talking about that. So now we're going to read this scripture in the context of that, of remembering that Christ is the head, the church is the body, and, and the oneness that this is about. Okay? So he says, wives, submit your, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay? For the husband is head of the wife, so also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. So what you see here. Is 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 and, and I'm restating the obvious, but Christ is the head of the body. Now remember, if even as you look at a natural body, you, the the head is Christ, and and we make up the parts in a different measure of grace and faith wherever God has us be as a part of that body. Not one being more important than the other, but all worthy of the honor that God says, "This is my body. This is how I do things." So he says, a husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church, which is the body, subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And again, the Christ, the head of the body, is what? He's loving us. He's he's loving us. In, in the spirit of that oneness, because we weren't designed to be separate from him. You were created to be one with him. And this is really what marriage is becomes that symbol of. Marriage becomes that symbol of that joining of that New Testament head, Christ, and the body of Christ. And, and you know as well as I do, as you make that journey uh, in marriage, you know, I've been married uh, uh, 36 years. Good this year, I believe something like that, and and the challenges in overcoming things. Yeah, she's in the other room, so she can't hear me. Um, <laughs> so so, but the challenge of growing all those things where 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 you become even more one in, in certain aspects of your life. There's there's verbal communication that doesn't have to happen. There's knowing each other to the point where you know somebody, how somebody's going to respond uh, uh, to a situation. Uh, you knowing how to respond to the other person because of a situation. All those things are the attributes or your training sessions of being one. Because in reality, when you learn who God is, when you begin to know God, you begin to be as one. Why? Because you respond when you see the Very way good. he is. Very good. I, I never talk about the choices that I make now. I look at the choices that I make now as though they are a testimony of where I am in my walk with God. You see, and, and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm, I, I'm always telling you make the right decision. But what I'm trying to tell you is this. Ch- choosing will reveal the man. 
Are we one in our walk with God? How you respond to situations and circumstances is a testimony of where you are in that journey in oneness with God. Very good. You see, and that's that's what's real hard for us. We're always telling people make the choice so that you become. No, you you choose out of what you are. And so as you continue to grow, it no longer becomes about what you've done. It becomes more about of what he's done, what he's doing, what he's showing about yourself. You just you begin to fade. You begin to fade out and and yet become more glorious because of the reality of who he is in you. And, and, and that's so counterintuitive. It so doesn't make any sense. So going back, husbands, love your wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So what Christ is doing in each one of our lives, he's taken the word, not only the logos, the written word that we read, but he's taken the rhema word, the words that you get when fellowship with him that are filled with faith to take you on this journey. He's, he's cleansing you with the washing of that word because he is presenting his body, the oneness the head, he's presenting that body without spot or wrinkle and such, and such without such thing so that we would be what? Holy and without blemish. And that's what that journey begins to look like in that oneness with him. It's <clears throat> great, mate. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Christ loves and cherishes. And I like what you were saying, Greg, uh, you know, just before we got started there. Look, you can't do it. It's okay. You know, I had to answer a question and I'll be bringing this up one time. And they were asking, what kind of parent did you did you think you were and raising your kids? I got four kids and, and uh, eight grandkids. And, and they said, well, what kind of parent did you think you were? This is a Christian group. And I wrote a failure. And then I wrote, I was okay with it too. <laughs> the point being is this, you're not leaning on yourself. It's all about Christ. You worked with the best things that you could, but it didn't surprise God. Why? Cause he was taking you on a journey to become more like him. So, I can be okay with the things that I've screwed up, not make excuses, knowing that what God began in me, he will finish it in me. So the pressure's not on to be conformed. It's the journey of confirmation or conformity that happens as you make this walk with him uh, day to day. So husbands that love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nurses, cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. We, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. See, that's, 
I think about that illustration for a minute. So you go from Genesis talking about oneness. Then you go to this the uh, uh, Ephesians. And what are they talking about? Oneness in a way that we really hadn't even thought about it. And he's speaking it in such a way that we might understand it, if you will. Look, you're a member of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. There is no separation through this. You're part of the body of Christ. And when you begin to realize that is your reality, now you get to step out of the confinements of time, the confinements of the calendar, and you get to live eternally. Come on. When, when, when death, death is just a, a, a moving on from this vessel to something better. And yet even we as Christians do such a bad, bad uh a way of dealing with it. Why? Because the reality that you're an eternal being and that you're the body of Christ is nothing more than head knowledge. Very good, Dave. But I want you to understand something, that when it becomes a part of the being of who you are, you will act completely different. Amen. Can I get a head nod there? That's brilliant. <laughs> this will give him a oh, wave. I wouldn't go that, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Nobody fell asleep yet? I mean, this is the first session for the day. I think My we're goodness. coming awake. <laughs> so that just kind of gives you two historical points about the oneness and, and how it's explained from the very beginning. So what, what we're talking about in this whole situation isn't new news. It started – sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that it's so good man it's so good this whole thing about going to work is just overrated <laughs> so it's not a new thing it's it's been a part of what we're supposed to be from the very beginning, I, I think about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I think about the things like, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. That, that all is demonstration of God's master plan that when he created humanity, what they were supposed to be. So getting back to um, looking at some more dynamics, I wrote a question and said, how did Jesus look at his life? And I kind of just picked out some scriptures uh, just going through John as 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 I was preparing today. So in John chapter five, verse 19. Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And as I'm reading these scriptures, all I can think about is what did Jesus exemplify about what oneness should really be? And so he he said, I can do nothing of himself. Do you know body of Christ? You can do nothing of yourself that what you should be doing is that which you see the father doing? Think about that for a moment. We many times act 
seem to walk in confusion or operate in, in confusion or being lost. Yet the fact of the matter, that's not what it is. We're the body of the Christ. So we know where we have to look in our lives. John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. These are attributes and characteristics of oneness. He doesn't care about anything else except executing the will of his Father. Now, can Jesus love and do all the other things that he does? Yes, he can. I often ask people just to put their brains in a, in a cramp. <laughs> Why did Christ come to earth? And the first thing they say to me, to save the sinner. And the next thing I tell them is, no. <laughs> he came to do what the Father wanted him to do. Think about that for a minute. He could have crawled off the cross. He could have got 10,000 angels. He could have done all kinds of things. He had authority. Everything was given to him. But what did he want to do? Only what he want, what the Father wanted to do. And that's what oneness is about. That's right. Only doing what the Father wants me to do. Only doing and executing God. When? Where? How? Why? And, and, and there's seasons in our lives where we'll be guessing a little bit of what that may be. But I want to challenge you. If you've been in this walk more than 10 minutes, it should be growing. And you should be Come moving on. out of knowing. Hey, hey. And not out of knowing. <laughs> now I'm meddling. <laughs> uh, John 6.38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And, and I, I'm just reading to you guys. I'm not smart enough to figure, make this stuff up. John eight twenty six. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world, to the world those things which I heard from him. You know, it's funny. The biggest challenge that we have, I would think, as Christians at times, is like slowing down and shutting up. <laughs> because we're so passionate about, and, and, and rightfully so, about wanting to speak of the things of God or prophesy, or whatever those things may be, that we kind of get going ahead of the curve. And the fact of the matter is that when we sit down and shut up, we give God the freedom to be perfect in his timing about what he does it's good. and how he does it yeah, it's good. and when he does it. You see, I haven't got to go travel like I wanted to this last year, but it's okay because if God can't figure this out, he don't need my help to figure it out. 
He doesn't. Um, John eight twenty six. Uh, did I read that one? Yes. yes. John twelve forty nine. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command: what I would say and what I should speak. I just fascinating to me that Jesus never did anything. By happenstance, there was never an accidental thing that went on. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the deliberateness of God. And, and when, you step, when you step into eternity, when you begin to view life from an eternal perspective, you begin to see how God operates in these things. That's very good. John 14, 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. The Father who dwells in me does the works. Oneness wasn't about being separate, wasn't about speaking out of turn. It was this reality that I no longer live, but he lives in through me. It's really good, Dave. So the next thing I said, so what did Jesus do? And I just picked a couple of examples because um, well, I had to fill up an hour and a half of talking time and I didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> So on John chapter two, verse one, it says on the third day, oh, I'll let you turn the page. It's kind of tough here because I can't hear the ruffling of pages as people are looking up in the Bible. It says on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. I want you to notice something. First of all, Mary's had a few experiences with Jesus that most people didn't have. You could say that she had some insights about the reality of who Jesus was. I think the point of conception was probably quite the revelation for the day. <laughs> So the fact of the matter is, is she has an intimate understanding. And, and, and this is really, again, this is one of the stories. Why would you read about Mary saying something about this? It doesn't make no sense. They ran out of wine. Big deal. Yet the mother of Jesus said they have no wine. But I really believe this is that Jesus is illustrating something. God is showing something to us. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is concerned about God's timing, not when man thinks things should be done. Very you know, good. it's funny. That's probably a, a big challenge for many of us at times. You see, God, I prayed and I figure in 30 days, my prayer should come to pass, and this is how it should be, because I've confessed it, 
and I've been obedient for long enough. <laughs> Very good. The point is, God doesn't have a watch. <laughs> He's not confined by time. But Jesus is concerned about what he wants to do. I like that. God doesn't have a watch. <laughs> John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the harvest, for they are already white from the harvest. Now, everybody knows what that's about, right? The woman in the well, God, disciples went, get to get something to eat, blah, blah, blah. How come he's had something to eat? But the point was that Jesus wasn't concerned about those things. He actually defined it in a great way. And I, I, and I think really as Christians, we really need to adopt this mentality. Since we are one with him, our meat is to do what? The will of the Father. There's nothing. There's nothing else that's important. We we don't get. We don't get to set the expectation of what it looks like. Very good. I, I don't. I don't mean that in a bad way. But what if God told you to go tell somebody something, and and they go and do it anyway? Many times as Christians, we go, "Oh my gosh, you know, I went and did this, and it should have done this." No, your job was to do what God wanted you to do. And the results were purely up to God. He was accomplishing what he was going to do. It wasn't about you attaching those things. You know, anybody that not be anybody that's ever been involved in youth ministry, that could be a disappointing path at times. <laughs> you, don't know how, you don't know how many kids I ministered to. And and did weddings and and spoke life into their lives and grew up to be hellions. <laughs> the point is, I was doing what God wanted me to do. It's God who's responsible for causing the growth. We get to water, we get to plant seed, but my meat is to do the will of the Father. There's something that that I want to just touch on real quick. In John 40, 35, he makes a statement. There are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say, you lift up your eyes and look, eyes and look at the fields for they are already white with harvest. I want to just take a moment to define what harvest is. Because in one sense, we've taken harvest and purely put it as souls. And I, I, I'm going to scan through something with you real quick, if you, if, you, if you don't mind. And since you're having to watch me on TV, uh, I guess you don't mind too much. Um, in Mark chapter 9, you see the very uh, – wait a minute. Did I pick the right one? I'm sorry, Matthew. Uh, 
it Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-seven. He says to his disciples, "The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers of you. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send send out laborers into the harvest." But when you take the context of what he's talking about and apply it in chapter nine across from beginning to end, you're going to see that Jesus was going about life and doing works. In fact, there's one part of it where he heals a paralytic. There's another part where he calls Matthew. There's another part where he answers the questions about fasting. There's a part where a girl's restored, a woman's healed. And all those are wonderful works that God had ordained beforehand to be done through him. But here's a part that really gets me. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, it says, When Jesus departed, there were two blind men following him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come to the house, the blind men came to him, and they said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. When he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying that no one knows this. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. So now you have to ask the question, why did Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? And here's why. Because in telling them what to do, he revealed the heart, hearts of the two blind men who were healed. Did those two blind men love Jesus? No. How do we know? Because love is proven out by what? Obedience. Right? Let me see a nod of the head. I'm going somewhere with this. I'm going to marinate on this for a minute. So here you look through this whole chapter and Jesus heals two people who do not love him. And we know that they don't love him because they don't follow his commands. So Jesus literally tells them this, knowing what man's going to do. First time God tells you to do something, what do you do? Opposite. More times than not. Human nature, it has no understanding of the law, the rules, or anything else like that. So he proves out what they are. So you can see that Jesus did all these works to the lost and to the found. And then he makes this statement. Again, verse 35. Then Jesus went all to the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness, every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. He said to the disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out the labors into the harvest. 
I want you to understand something. As one, as part of the body of Christ, the harvest is where God has sent you in your schools, in your workplace, in your churches to do the works that he has ordained to be done, whether for the lost or the found does not matter. What needs to be sown or harvested are the works that he's commanded us to do. Do you understand? Yes. Yes? Yes. (laughs) It's that accent. (laughs) So, it really, again, becomes reflective and more important to understand that as, as one, as the body, as the reality of who he is, as one with God, the harvest that is out there are all these things that God has said. And, and, and that's really, it. it's Ephesians 2.10, that the works he created beforehand to be done through us, your harvest is there. Don't just limit it to souls. God may want you to touch that individual that you may think never, ever look at him for God's sake, not yours. Amen. Amen. Okay. I don't see anybody nodding off. Greg, you see anybody I need to look at? (laughs) They're all hearing. (laughs) All right. All right. So getting back to John. Uh, chapter five, verse one. What time is it? Uh, is it uh, where are you? What time is it there for you? Eleven fourteen. You're okay, man. Eleven fourteen. Yeah, but not yeah. on a timeline. Remember, God doesn't have a watch. Uh, no, God doesn't have a watch. <laughs> Some other people might want to go out for lunch, but we're all good. We're, yeah, we're eating lunch say, now. You know, the are going to start lunch speaking real in. loud. <laughs> all right. Um, John chapter five, verse one. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, named, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. How many people are here? A great multitude. For an angel went down at a certain time in the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had no infer- had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in the condition alongside to him, said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answers to him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise up, take your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took his bed and walked. And the day was the Sabbath. Now, here's the point. The point is the multitude of sick and paralyzed people that are there. How many people got healed? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. (laughs) One. One. Look, you guys know sign language, too. One. Now, if I was God and I came upon a multitude of people, really, that's how we think. That's right. It's very but good. But what was Jesus concerned with? 
Only what the Father wanted him to do. How? Uh, here we go. We're getting some deep theology yeah, here. Good, man. How many people did God want to heal? One. Well, don't easy, easy. Okay, that's the point. So I got to tell you, in my office, there's like a fan. So Kirk makes me buy this nice microphone that picks up everything. So I could hear a fly buzz in the closet now, and I can't have the fan on because you guys can hear it. So needless to say, I'm just sweating. Oh, I'm sorry. You guys are all wrapped up in warm clothing. I think we're having internet so, issues, Dave. We might have to cut you off. I think <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just, those are just a, a couple things that, again, wanted to think about. So as I continue to answer this question, what does it mean to be one with him? And, again, I continue to look at in John 17, 3, and I kind of went by verse to verse and just tried to uh, pick up some things. So these are some of my observations and John 17, three, and this is eternal life that you may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you be sent. So really what's it, what does it mean to be one with him? It's about knowing God. The second verse 17, four, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So what what does it mean to be one with him? It's about finish the work God ordained to be done through you. You don't get to decide what it should look like. You just get to decide to do it. You know, I've traveled some pretty far countries and, you know, the church that I got to preach in, there was three people that were there. It's not my decision to decide who should be there. Very good. God puts the people there. I'm just supposed to be there and do what I'm supposed to do. John 17, 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So it's about manifest. So being one, it's about manifesting his name to those that God places around you. So. The biggest thing that I do is I spend my time in business. You're not going to believe this, Tim. I mean, here we come through a pandemic, and God has this business he has me in, and it grows 20%, and we're actually still making money? That doesn't even make sense. But – in the midst of all those people and all those situations and upset people, how are we manifesting Jesus to everybody around him? Um, I had a certain situation um, come up where um, we built a very expensive pool. Um, just to give you a context, this pool in this backyard was 300,000 American dollars. That's, that's what this guy's backyard is. <laughs> wow. it, no, it's not mine. It, it's somebody else's. <laughs> and so this project has uh, 
water slide and cave and spa and sunken bar and and pergolas and Ramon. I mean, it's just I'll show you some pictures one of these days. It's just gorgeous. Hey, Dave, when I come over, are we going there? Uh, that's if he still likes me. <laughs> that's where the story's going. <laughs> so this project has been taken over a year to do. And so um, he's hated me at times during this project. And I have superintendents work for me. So this guy has um, crucified us in social media. He's um, uh, sent the attorney general after us. He sent the registrar contractors after us. Um, uh, I've gotten lawyers from his uh, law, uh, letters from his lawyers, not to come out to lunch, but you know, other things. Um, and so it's been this huge trial and tribulation. Well, this guy's supposed to be a believer. He's a brother in the Lord. So what's my responsibility? Manifest Jesus to him. Pray for him. Regardless of how miserable he's attempted to make my life. Very good. Very good. The other thing that was is I have to manifest Jesus to my staff. How when they're watching me, am I showing them how Jesus responds to each of these situations? Am I seeking wisdom from the Holy Spirit? Am I responding the way God wants to, or do I respond the way the world does? So really, again, being one with him, it's about manifesting his name to those that God places around you. John 78, for I haven't given to them words which you have given me, and they receive them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now, I want you to understand something. The Greek word for words in this context, is rhema. And rhema means a fresh word from God that is applicable and filled with faith in regards to the current circumstances. So really, when we're one with him, we're to share the words we hear from God to those God places around us in regards to what their circumstances are, in regards to how to navigate things. You see, what I love about the job that Greg has is he gets to what? Share the rhema, the revelation, the fresh words that God gives him about getting to know him more and the importance of them. But each one of us needs to be doing that wherever we are, right. whether it's in the home group, whether it's, <coughs> excuse me, whether it's work, whether it's at home, whether it's with your family. Whatever contacts that word, there has to be the living word, not just not just the written word, but the word that comes in the that, that happens when you have fellowship with him because you're listening to his voice. That that right, those that needs to be shared. John 17, 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you give me, for they are yours. This, what's it mean to be one with him? It's about praying for his body. Notice, he says, I do not pray for the world. I know, it's a tough one to swallow again. <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've said this before. Intercessors, 
Are you listening? Don't pray for me unless God tells you to. I'm serious. That's because why? You need to be about your father's business. And I may not be your responsibility. Very good. Very good. Um, John 17, 11. Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So what is what is being one with him? It's about praying for the unity of his body. Oh, my goodness. The body of Christ at times and what we demonstrate is so far from unified. It's ridiculous. And the problem is, is. We have this desire to be right instead of watching each other grow up to be right. Very good. Very good. Enjoying the fullness of who he is. Look, people are where they are. It's okay. I'm going to help us along in that journey. You know, and maybe this comes with age. The older you get, the more you just sit back, listen, Kind of encourage, and then why wait for the building to fall? <laughs> I mean, really, is that the character of God? Does not God give us over to our own hearts at times to do what? Okay, you want it that way? Here you go. Good luck with it. I'll be on the other side. It's great, mate. Pray for the unity of the body of Christ. John 17, 13, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled, fulfilled in themselves. So being one with him is about having his joy in us. Do you understand since you live outside the realms of time, since you have the DNA of God, you can also have the joy of God because what's going on in this whacked out world, you are not a part of. Amen. You guys, this this pandemic, what? I have God. Let the chips fall where they fall. If he can't figure it out, I don't want to help him. He knows what he's doing. You guys would not be proud of me. I was a rebel with the mask. I wasn't going to wear it. I just, God, here you are. Now, I'm not telling you to be foolish, and I'm not telling you not to do what you're convicted of. All I'm doing is just sharing me. That's it, okay? Still love me anyway? Still love you, bro. It's awesome. Keep uh, going. You can turn the TV off if you want to. <laughs> John seventeen sixteen. Oh, 17, 14. I have given him your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just I am not of the world. Being one with Christ is about being hated by the world. Ooh, that sounds uncomfortable. Really, you should be uncomfortable if the world loves you. I often think about that. Yeah. Yeah. But yet we, we, we measure our success by the amount of people that like us. 
And yet Jesus said we'd be hated. John 17, 16, they are not of the world. Just I am not of the world. It's about living life out of this world because you are not of this world. Very good. Very good. You can't say it enough. John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Being one with him, it's about being made holy by the reading of his written word. Allow his written word to wash you. Listen to the things that he speaks as he imparts faith to do things that you never knew you could do. John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Being one with him is about being sent in the world. You are a small sample of a stamped image of God for the world to see. Did you hear me? You are a small sample of the stamped image of God for the world to see. You have a measure of grace that God's manifesting who he is in you, and you are to manifest that to that world. Very good. John 17, 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. It's about the world believing that the Father sent Jesus. Find it interesting that there was actually a point and a purpose to it. John 17, 26, that I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in turn in them, and I in them. It's about the love of Christ being in you. I wanted to, uh, I'm going to share something with you. So I belong to a Christian businessmen's uh, group, and I was they, I've been moved to a new group. Um, and so they make you fill out this featured member presentation. Uh, what, what's up? Did I miss something? Oh, we don't know why you were moved. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to go into that. <laughs> Actually, uh, the group... Okay, but well, there's an interesting side story, I guess. So those kind of business groups usually are the best when there's about 12 people in there. So our group never got beyond five. And the problem with our group is that we were like God followers. And when you're a real God follower, people who aren't serious about God aren't interested in hanging around. And that's the truth. And so when I'm involved in business, there's no separation between God and business. I don't know how to operate that way. I don't know what that means. Actually, I'm not smart enough to operate that way. Because if you looked at my business habits, most people evaluate that and said, you should be out of business. So I like dependent on God to the nth degree. So Anyway, that group just kind of continued to dwindle down. And, and so when it got down to three people, it just wasn't going to be effective. And we both felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, hey, let's go a different direction on this. So anyway, they gave me this featured member presentation. Now, anybody, 
anybody that's in business or dealing with business understands there's, there's a way the world does things. And when you're one with God or when you're making that journey with one, you're going to find yourself more and more at odds with how the world does things. And, and that includes business. So I had to fill out these questions so that they could assimilate where I am or what I am. I'm not sure how to say that. So I'm going to go through this thing because I really think it gives you a tangible um, idea of living day-to-day life. I mean, sometimes we get in our conferences and our churches and we kind of spiritualize things here. But what I want to do, what I'm trying to do with this is take it out of that and say, look, here's a guy who gets up and goes to work every day and, and here's how I operate. So what goals do you have at this point? Personal, business, or spiritual? Describe any habits, attitudes, or perspectives that need to be changed. I'll descri- also describe needs, resources, relationships, skill sets needed to accomplish each goal. Sounds pretty good. Legitimate. I'm going to read my answer. I only want to look like Jesus. He causes the growth, so obstacles, opportunities, and resources resources are non-existent. He's able to finish what he began, has begun in my life. So you're looking for a new group? Well, it did make some interesting discussion. <laughs> Business goal. You'll like this one. Business goals. Here's my answer. None. <laughs> he said grow a company, so that's what we're going to do. He's not mentioned any obstacles, opportunities, or need of resources. What he has declared, he has no possibility of not coming to pass. If he can't fix it, then why on earth would I think I could? <laughs> Spiritual goals. Same as personal goals. The two are not separate. Biggest personal need. Nothing. Nothing. I'm content where he has me. If married, I won't read that one. Well, actually, I can. It says, if married, what's your spouse name? How long you've been married? Rhonda, we've been married 36 years in August. What have you found to be the most healthy building in your marriage? God. (laughs) What is your spouse's love language and how well do you feel you meet it? Words of affirmation, I do well. She probably will disagree. (laughs) How successful do you feel you've been as a parent up to this point? And what do you need to improve? Failure. Show them more Jesus. What is going on in your family that you feel the group should know? And how can we help (laughs) Be in prayer for you. Nothing. (laughs) What one thing do you need most to improve to be the person in your home that the Lord wants you to be? Look like Jesus. (laughs) Biggest spiritual need? None. What passage of scripture are you studying right now and how is God's work speaking to you at this point in your life? The Bible. 
trying to wrap my head around being one with God in the body of Christ. <laughs> what spiritual discipline are you most diligent in keeping? Which ones do you need most to focus on improving? I pray. I listen. I read his word daily. End of answer. How would you describe your spiritual life now? Wonderful. (laughs) What are the dashboard benchmarks that you use to measure the status of your business? I don't. Have you taken any have you taken any leadership? If so, leadership assessments. If so, which one and what were the results? No, I'm broken. It seems those are the kind of people God uses for his purposes. (laughs) Where do your strength as a leader? A servant. What are your weaknesses? A servant. That's good, man. It's the truth. Somebody asked me to expound on that. He says, how does that how does that make sense? Well, I said, when you're strength, you're being a servant, you're you're serving those and know that there's success. Well, the weaknesses of being a servant is what? People run you over and take advantage of you. Mm. It, it it truly is the thing. But really, again, about being one with Christ isn't really concerned for being run over. I know a guy who got thrown on a cross and died one time over this whole thing. Good man. (laughs) Do you tend to spend more time leading from your strength or trying to prove your areas of weakness? Why do you answer as you do? I try to ask God how to handle each challenge as each challenge is unique. What God does one time, he may want to do different the next time. Yeah, very good. What unique value do you bring to your organization? In other words, what can you and you alone do to bring value? Apart from Christ, I got nothing. I have to be led by the Holy Spirit. His attributes are what needs to be exhibited through me. What do you need to stop doing altogether? Nothing at this point. The guy looked at me when I said that, and they couldn't put their heads around that. And I'm like, if God has me doing certain things, that's what you do. And when it's not time to do them anymore, we won't do him. And he hasn't said don't do anything. So I'm not sure I understand where your concern is. <laughs> Tell us what the ideal customer or client looks like. Anyone that God has signed a contract. I learned a long time ago, we get everyone we're supposed to get. And we don't get everyone we're not supposed to get. What does your company do better than anyone else? Grow by his spirit. I read you this. So one of the individuals, and there's about six other gentlemen there who are probably more successful if you want to measure it by the world standards about business. And one of them said to me, you're either the most narcissistic, egotistical person I've ever met or an extremely humble man. 
And it's funny because when you follow Christ, when you become one with what he's doing, it's such an anomaly that people don't understand it. They can't wrap their heads around that you would be dependent on God for absolutely everything. They can't wrap their head around that if you boast, you're boasting in Christ. You have nothing else to boast in. That's that's what becoming one with him is all about. I'm going to close with one scripture. You guys are going to get to eat today. Second Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. And I, and I love this because I, it really speaks to the epitome of being one. And Paul said, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And I want you to concentrate on this part right here. Paul's response. And really, this needs this is what the characteristic of Christ in you really is. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if I could sum it up, what is oneness with him? Lord, let my prayer be when I look in the mirror, I see you and no longer see me. Thanks for letting me share today. Got any questions? Greg? I just, I just really want to ask you if you could pray. And then I'm going to get us to pray round tables for the next sort of 15, 20 minutes. But if you can just pray. Okay. Just, just Absolutely. Father, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for taking on this journey, God. And, and I pray, God, that you would raise up in us an unholy, a, a, a holy dissatisfaction. Let's say it that way. A holy dissatisfaction and a hunger to know you more and a desire to look like you more. God, I know that you were intentional for bringing us together. I know, Holy Spirit, you have touched us. I know he who begins a good work is faithful to complete it. We thank you, God, for allowing us to be on this journey. God, I pray for the rest of this conference 
God, that you would continue to be lifted up and exalted, Lord. You are good. May we continue to manifest you to the entire world. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.